0: This is Al. Producer Alex here. We're in week two of a two-week break. Chuck is back at it on Monday. But until then, we're playing 2021 favorites picked by listeners. And today, we're revisiting an April interview with writer Ben Ehrenreich on his article, We're Hurdling Toward Global Suicide for the New Republic. Thanks to Joel and Pete for the pick. And thanks to everyone who sent in guest and topic suggestions and feedback in 2021. Really appreciate hearing from you. Let's do it again in 2022. All right, here's Ben Aaron Reich on Global Suicide. Happy New Year!
1: This is hell.
0: If we only had a president who listened to scientists and believed in science, then we could finally have a president who would finally fight climate change. Joe Biden was supposed to be that president. And judging by everything he said in the first few weeks of his presidency... Things are very promising, but there's the science that says the root cause of climate change is runaway economic growth. And that's the kind of science that seemingly no politician in the U.S. from either party is willing to believe. Returning to This Is Hell, writer Ben Ehrenreich wrote the New Republic article, We're hurtling toward global suicide. And Ben, by the way, congratulations on quite a cheery headline there. (laughs) Thanks Chuck, it's great to be back And in 2011 you uh, won the National Magazine Award for the Los Angeles Magazine The National Magazine Award for the Los Angeles Magazine article, The End What Really Happens After You Die So why such cheery writing, Ben?
1: Oh, you know I I keep saying um, that at some point I'm going to really dig in and and write the book about puppies that I've always been wanting to write Um, but I keep getting distracted by, you know, horrible things. (laughs) (laughs) Writing about those instead.
0: I got an idea. Maybe it should be a book about puppies during climate change, because that sounds like perfect for you. Ben is the author of Desert Notebooks, a roadmap for the end of time, which we discussed with Ben on This Is Hell back in July of last year. This is Ben's fourth appearance on This Is Hell, and you can find all of our conversations with him by searching on his last name, Aaron Reich, at thisishell.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at Ben Aaron Reich, and find out more about Ben at his website, benarenreich.net. So you mentioned an article (coughs) published in the journal Frontiers in Conservation Science, despite its eye-catching title, Underestimating the Challenges of Avoiding a Ghastly Future. The 17 scientists who co-wrote the article, the experts who peer-reviewed it, and the journal's editors did not consider the word ghastly too sensational, subjective, or value-laden to describe the future toward which our society is advancing with all the prudence and caution of a runaway locomotive. The article's message was simple. Everything must change. So Ben, if everything must change, things must be changing, but just not as fast as necessary, maybe? To what degree is anything change, any change happening right now?
1: Well, you know, I mean, there's clearly some degree of change with Biden in the White House instead of Trump. But, um, you know, Biden has rhetorically um, embraced the language of climate emergency, um, has rhetorically expressed some urgency, um, but is certainly not acting as if there's any urgency. Um, you know, I think, um, and I'm sure we'll go into this. You know, the the piece is really about how the entire frame that mainstream climate advocacy puts on the issue um, more or less dooms us. Um, to at least two degrees of, um, of warming and prevents, um, you know, the, the possibility of real change, um, which would have to be social and economic change um, in order to, uh, you know, prevent further warning. Um, but even within um, that sort of fundamentally, I think, delusional um, climate frame, um, Biden isn't doing nearly enough um you know, there was some excitement in the, the first few weeks, uh, you know, the, the day of his inauguration and the Wednesday after that, he rolled out all these executive orders um, and it felt like, uh, you know, there was finally some ambition, um, even if, you know, those orders didn't do quite as much as most of us would have wanted. Um, and then nothing happened and we were all supposed to wait for this uh, infrastructure project to be rolled out and that started happening uh, yesterday. And I must say that, you know, even by um, those terms, which we'll discuss of the uh, of, of mainstream climate advocacy, the infrastructure plan is like woefully inadequate and to call it to call it tepid is uh, is an understatement. Um, so, yeah, compared to Trump, uh, when we were you know, just absolutely racing headlong into the abyss, um, things have changed and for the better. And there is at least some awareness and some, um, you know, some focus. Um, But there is not, I would say, in in this country, um, any sense of, uh, you know, um, any action that is appropriate to the, uh, you know, um, level of crisis that we're facing.
0: In the framing that's often used, whether it's the Biden administration or administrations before uh, the Biden administration, it has always been trying to make it so we can actually create jobs and we can continue the economy as we have it now with climate change happening. So when it comes to that framing, you point out how the article from the Frontiers in Conservation Science Uh, It it states that humanity, or some of us anyway, is, quote, running an ecological Ponzi scheme in which society or some sectors of it, quote, robs nature and future generations to pay for boosting incomes in the short term. Ben, do you think reacting to this Ponzi scheme of climate change as if it is a crime, would criminalizing climate change stop global warming?
1: Uh, you know I'm, I'm always a little hesitant about criminalizing anything
0: um given uh, the size of our, our
1: prison population in the u.s and then what would that mean exactly right i mean who who do you want to what do you, you want to criminalize people who can't afford uh you know to replace their you know their 20 year old pickup truck um or do you want to go after the uh you know ceos of, of the fossil fuel companies that are um you know that have been lying to the public and, and jeopardizing the future you know not only our species, but many other species now for, uh, you know, more than a generation. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm generally, uh, I'd say a prison abolitionist, but I'm pretty okay with, uh, um, you know, locking up some CEOs. (laughs) Um,
0: I'm looking forward to that too. You also write that there was of course also a good deal of typical Democratic half-stepping in Biden's plan. He mentions a pause on drilling and not an outright ban. And why had and why had the administration quietly gone ahead and approved 31 new drilling permits anyway, you ask? Why no mention of fracking? Why not just shut down all the oil and gas pipelines that disserve the U.S. national interest, as the executive order put it, in exactly the same ways that Keystone XL did? So is the Biden climate change plan then to have climate change as a daily part of the federal bureaucracy while not ending the processes that actually contribute to climate change?
1: Yeah, I mean, so far, it seemed, you know, there was enormous amounts of of pressure um, put on Biden um, from the left and from the the climate movement um, during the primaries um, and during the campaign. Um, And Biden went from really not talking about climate um, to talking about it. And, you know, like, like I, to his credit, like this is not only better than Trump, what he's done, it's better than anything Obama did. Um, it's better than anything any president we've had yet has done, but it's still, uh, you know, embarrassingly tepid. Um, and, you know, it's proving as, as the weeks pass to be sort of more tepid by the minute. Um, you know, the his, um, I, I just read this morning, um that the um the energy information administration of the u.s government had determined that biden's temporary moratorium on new oil and gas leasings will have no effect at all in the current year um, and that uh, they forecast that in 2022 it will reduce oil and gas production uh, oil production i suppose by less than 100,000 barrels a day um, which might sound like a lot unless you take into account that the u.s produces um, more than 11 million barrels a day. Um, so, you know, there, there, he's been doing things um, that, that sound like he's doing things, but that have, you know, very little effect um, while talking up a plan, mainly in terms of its economic effects and in terms of uh, the amount of jobs he's going to create. He's much more comfortable talking about jobs than he is about climate. Um, and I think that's because taking on climate in any sincere way means um, making real changes to uh, the way our society functions um, that certainly our elites are not interested in making.
0: And the, there's a stress within the Biden administration of having a pragmatic response to climate change. Biden has said he wants to do everything through bipartisan bipartisanism. Is pragmatic climate change according to Biden bipartisan climate change policy? And can the climate change can climate change be addressed in a bipartisan manner?
1: No, I think, I think that you know there, there's nothing at all in the political history of the United States of the last few decades to suggest that Republicans um, are willing to really do anything at all. Um, you know some might be you know with the current balance of power in Congress, some might be convinced to uh, you know go over into a carbon tax, um scheme of some kind or another uh, but even that I, i'd really be surprised if they went for and, and that you know i think um in, in real terms we'll, we'll we'll do next to nothing um to limit emissions um you know essentially you know um so yeah I, I i don't think uh um i i think it's it's totally delusional as is biden's uh you know talk about um bipartisanship on pretty much every front um but um I always think it's kind of funny when, when people talk about a pragmatic approach to climate change, Um, because usually what that means is that, you know, we'll work with the existing, uh, you know, um, loci of power who will not let us do anything because that's, you know, that's what pragmatism demands. So pragmatism ends, ends up, um, you know, the pragmatic approach is the one that guarantees, you know, extinction um, for, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of species, and that threatens the lives of billions of, of human beings. You know, this is this is our pragmatic solution.
0: So you explained the 17 scientists' article was no surrender. Quote, it was meant as a kick in the ass, a reminder that our only chance is a thoroughgoing transformation, specifically as they write, fundamental changes to global capitalism, education, and equality, which includes inter alia, that is, among other things, the abolition of perpetual economic growth. So is the abolition of perpetual economic growth pragmatic?
1: I think it's, it, it's really the only pragmatic thing. And I should add, you know, that, 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 the, the article that I highlighted in the beginning of um, the piece uh, that talked about the ghastly future that was signed by 17 scientists, this is one of, of, of many articles. Um, you know, I also mentioned uh, in 2019, um, scientists published a warning of climate emergency um, which one was published, I think garnished more than 11,000 signatures. Since then, it's garnished more than 13,000 signatures, all of them uh, you know, scientists, not not just, you know, uh, it's not somebody standing in front of uh, Walmart taking signatures, but these are, you know, scientists who know something about these subjects, um, which also, uh, you know, insisted on a shift away from GDP growth as one of the only ways of getting us out of this crisis. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it's... You know, if one removes the blinkers um, that the uh, certainly that every economics department in this country puts on one, um, and that the extremely limited um, field of political discourse in this country puts on one, um, it becomes like you know quite patently obvious um, that uh, not only the climate crisis. Um, but the extinction crisis and the biodiversity crisis and the crisis facing the oceans and, uh, you know, not to mention various other uh, simply human um, crises um, are um, coeval with the development of industrial capitalism. Um, you know, that, that human beings lived on the planet for 300,000 odd years, um, and certainly, uh, you know, humans in various places did, uh, you know, alter their environments, it's one of the things that humans do, we're a bit like ants or prairie dogs, Um, but we did not ever um, do so in a way that threatened uh, the future of the species, um, or the the future of so many other species, Um, and that, you know, this is a, uh, this is not just a a coincidence um, that we are talking about a system um, that regards the entire planet. Um, you know, the planet, its atmosphere, uh, the minerals beneath it, the oceans, all of the life on in the oceans, all of the life on the land, um, as potential commodities, um, you know, as resources uh, that must be exploited um, and um, in order to raise capital for the exploitation of uh, further resources and envisions this kind of infinite chain, um, of, um, churning, uh, the material world and the immaterial world into commodities, which can, uh, then be, you know, um, the, the source of further growth. Um, and behind it all is I, what I think of this as a really, a, an entirely religious notion, um, that this can go on forever. Um, you know, in the piece, I compare it to a perpetual growth, a, a, a perpetual motion machine. Um, you know, this idea that that we can keep on eating and eating and eating and eating um, and never run out. Um, and I think it's been painfully clear uh, in the last half century, more than the last half century, um, but especially in the last two three decades. Um, that this is this is not working out um it's not working out for human beings it's not working out for most of the other species with which we share the planet Um, and you know i think there are plenty of reasons uh to um passionately oppose the relations imposed upon us by capitalism before we realized it was actually destroying um you know our biological basis on the planet Um, and uh, now we can we can add a, a pretty major one to them.
0: Prior to the presidential election on a lot of lawns and up here on the northwest side of uh, far north side of Chicago, you saw a lot of Biden-Harris signs. And then next to them would be a sign that had a lot of phrases on it, like Black Lives Matter. And one of the phrases was science is real. There mm-hmm. is climate change denialism and there are those fighting to stop climate change who purport to believe that science is real to what extent do those who fight climate change have any denialism that fundamental changes must be made to global capitalism as argued by scientists does the democratic party have a denialism toward what science says about capitalism
1: yeah absolutely and and you know i i have my own skepticism about um this sort of religion around science this notion science is real this notion that 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 you know, that science can ever remain completely uh, divorced um, from politics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what I want to do in this piece was to say, you know, just to kind of put that skepticism aside for a minute and say, OK, well, if we actually listen to, um, you know, if we take this strictly empiricist view um, and we um, believe in a, in a really simple way that that what the scientists are saying, it's what we have to do as a um, society, um, is current climate advocacy living you know in line with that um and and the i think the pretty obvious answer is no you know i've been covering climate for a while um i went last year to the uh um the cop meeting in was it last year or the year before time has uh obviously done some strange things recently um was 2019 um in in madrid um and you know the big international um you know, climate meeting and was stunned there and in domestic circles at the degree to which uh, certain things are simply not discussed Um, and the degree to which um, the conversation is limited um, to certain extremely narrow terms um, and can only really take place within the Um, parameters of what is called green growth, um, which is something I talked about at at some length in the piece, and we can go into that if you like.
0: And we'll get to that in just a moment. But you also write, it's as if our economic system and the politics it breeds will not allow us to diverge from the straight path to self-obliteration. To what degree are we choosing self-obliteration?
1: Well, you know, on an individual level, I think don't, most of us don't have much choice. You know, um, you know, you, you find a job uh, that will support you and support your family. And, uh, you know, it might be with a company that does uh, awful things. It's the only job you can find. And you may have to, um, you know, drive uh, an hour every morning to get there and may not be able to afford a nice Tesla. Uh, you know, um, there's a million ways in which this system locks us in um to behaviors that are you know killing us and killing people all around the planet um where you know individual choice has has very little to do with it um but i think when we get to the level of uh you know policymakers um at a national level um, when we get to the level of the people who are determining the shape of the discourse, whether it's the big private NGOs or institutions, um, you know, from the World Bank to uh, you know to the UN, um, then yeah, then then there then then there's some real uh, choices, and and I think direct responsibility.
0: You write the market's grip on the political imagination at, so effectively blinds us to alternatives that we are unable fully to grasp. That this is the basic script that the new administration is following. Even the Green New Deal does not substan- substantively diverge from that script. How does the Green New Deal not substan- substantively diverge from the market solution to climate change?
1: I, you know, I think the Green New Deal um, and and not just the Green New Deal, but with something called the Thrive Agenda, which has uh, been been created by a lot of the groups that that had uh, pushed for the Green New Deal, they kind of present the the best and most progressive version of this notion of the green growth, right? So, you know, we want green jobs, we want... you know we want uh, a transition away from fossil fuels to um sustainable sources of energy um, but we also want environmental justice and we want a living wage and we want housing for all and we want universal health care you know so they i think quite correctly um and in many ways excitingly you know use the climate crisis as a pivot Um, for broader social and economic change, necessary, urgently necessary social and economic change. Um, And I think that's all good. Um, I think the problem is that there is no real reckoning with the unfortunate fact um, that this kind of transition is not going to be possible without some more fundamental economic um, transformation. Um, which is to say that, uh, the, you know, the fundamental basis, uh, for, for green growth, the idea that you can kind of take our existing fossil fuel based, um, economy and prop it up, um, shift it over, uh, to a new foundation on, um, you know, on renewable energies, um, that does not appear. To be possible, um, and I'm not just saying this as a skeptic. I mean, there's um, plenty of, of literature suggesting this, um, and so the, the Green New Deal also it, do, it does like the very nice progressive version of, "Hey, we're going to create lots of jobs. Um, we're going to we're going to use this crisis to um, instill all these forms of, of of social justice, which we have desperately needed for so long." Um, but it's still not reckoning, I think, with uh, with the fundamental problems.
0: So, is green growth then climate change neoliberalism that there is no alternative to fighting climate change other than to financially profit while doing so?
1: Um, I'm not sure if it's. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think something like the Green New Deal pushes us away from a, a neoliberal frame sufficiently to, that I don't know if it makes sense to, to talk about that word in that context. Certainly, I think in In the the Biden context uh, and the way most countries and in, you know, throughout the world are approaching this uh, neoliberalism still certainly does apply. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, green growth tries to preserve uh, the basic dogma of growth. Despite, uh, you know, so, so, you know, I I was talking about earlier about, um, you know, these last couple hundred years having established, right, that capitalism is, 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 has been absolutely devastating, um, to the species, to other species, to the planet, et cetera, right? Um, and green growth seems to me as a, a way to try to keep this religion going, even when everybody's lost faith, you know? Um, it's sort of like, uh, um, you know, one of the, uh, apocalyptic cults of the 19th century that predicts that the world is going to end on you know April 24th and then the world doesn't end on April 24th and they're like oh, okay well we meant next year in May um, you know green growth I think is in the same way trying to preserve the, these absolutely shaky foundations um, by just moving them a few yards over um, and uh, you know I, I don't think uh, I, I guess the 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 term we should probably end up um, discussing is when you, it's rare, you know, this is, green growth is, is simply the assumption of most climate advocates. Um, it's not analyzed, it's not discussed, it's not questioned. Um, I think by writing this article, I probably annoyed um, a lot of people who don't want to uh, think about these things, mainly because they're struggling to, you know, fight within the parameters of a, of a system that's already difficult enough. Um, but I think it is, you know, crucially important that we do pause and question these things. Um, and, you know, the main mechanism, if you wonder how green growth is going to happen, you start digging around in the literature. Um, the, the mechanism that is mentioned is the word is decoupling, Right. Um, like, you know, like separating a train from one engine that's taking you to a wrong place, uh, and moving it, you know, recoupling it to another engine, which will, instead of spitting out diesel fuel, you know, just be working on solar and take us into, into green flower filled pastures. Um, and the problem is that there is no evidence that decoupling is happening or has happened anywhere in a, in any real sense, um, and most of the evidence uh, for decoupling is what's called relative decoupling, which basically means uh, when countries like uh, you know um, wealthy countries like the within the European Union, for instance, um, have achieved some level of, of relative decoupling um and continue to have you know sturdy gdp growth even as they no longer rely heavily on on fossil fuels right or as heavily on fossil fuels Um, and this has mainly happened um because they have their economies are no longer based on manufacturing the way they were 30 and 40 years ago 50 years ago Um, and most of the manufacturing of the commodities that they consume has been pushed to countries in the global south to china um, to latin america uh, to southeast asia Um, so all of the dirty parts of their economy have simply moved elsewhere right um and they get to keep the clean part so that's one kind of decoupling that's the that's the kind we actually get to that we actually do on the regular and all it really you know proves is that the global economy you know still functions on a on a colonial basis um but the kind of absolute decoupling um where gdp growth continues um and fossil fuel fuel use falls off that has not happened anywhere um and the um, scholarly literature i've read um has you know shown hundreds of studies um Which all together fail to show that that kind of absolute decoupling has occurred, or is even possible to the degree that would be necessary for green growth not to be uh you know a pretty fantasy?
0: you mention how there is this reliance on technology to remove ca- uh, carbon from the atmosphere after the fact within the fight uh, within the plans to fight climate change, but you write that the technology in question is at this point largely speculative. To what extent is the Biden policy on climate change and the global fight against climate change dependent upon fantasy technology that does not exist? Because back in 2019, I think it was 2019, I'm having the same problems with time as you are, uh, we talked to Christian Parenti and he told us that there are a lot of a lot of the technologies actually do exist. It's just the ability to upscale in order to have a real impact on the environment and have a real impact on climate change. Doesn't yet exist. So, to what extent does Biden? To what extent does the world's fight against climate change depend upon fantasy technology that has yet to be invented?
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's if if you want to get some, um, you know, good research grant money uh, going for decarbonization technology is a pretty good way to do it. Um, You know, there's tons of money being pumped out there to um, find new technologies that can remove carbon from the air in one way or another. Um, and but yeah, the problem is that there this is all of it is untested on anything close to the scale necessary because this stuff would have to be um, deployed at a, at a massive scale. Um, I, I reviewed uh, a few weeks ago, um, Elizabeth Colbert's new book uh, Under a White Sky, um, which talks about some of this in, in some real depth. And, and the stuff about geoengineering is, is like absolutely disturbing, Um, you know, that um, one of the main methods of geoengineering, which would be to, you know, basically spray reflective particles of one kind or another um, into the stratosphere to uh, reflect the sun's energy back um, and reverse global warming, um, you know, would would require you know thousands and thousands of flights by these these you know, giant airplanes which we spraying uh these particles which might you know which might also cause all these awful you know droughts and a million other horrific effects and acid rain etc etc um and and every year that, that that we do it we would have to increase it right because we would still be producing just as much carbon emissions um so we'd have to it, it would just get us stuck in in this you know, nightmarish scenario. We'd have to be producing more and more of this, you know, untested, extremely expensive technology. And if we ever stopped it, the the metaphor that she uses uh, is pretty visceral. It would be like opening an oven door, you know, that if there was a war, if there was uh, some kind of disaster, we couldn't keep these flights going, then all that heating that we had managed to reflect back um, would suddenly, you know, be upon us very instantly um and the you know the fact is that in in the net zero calculations um that governments and corporations are making um and in most of the scenarios um that international um climate organizations use to try to figure out you know what we'd have to do to stay at a um you know some not Catastrophic degree of warming, which you know means, for the most part, keeping it below one point five degrees Celsius, um, rely on technology that has not yet been deployed or tested, and that, in real terms, does not exist. Um, so, you know, this is one of the things that, like, as I read more and thought about it, was was just stunning to me that the entire scheme. Um, that most climate advocates, and climate advocates are people who really care about this. I'm not, I'm not, these are not evil people, right? These are, these are people who are um, trying hard. Um, but the scheme that most people um, have come up with is more willing to rely on technology that is now that does not now exist um, and on a transition um, that may not be possible um, than they are to even entertain the idea of meaningful social and economic change. Um, that is the one thing that no one is willing to talk about, um, that we may actually have to change our economy in, in really fundamental
0: You mentioned mentioned Elizabeth Colbert. We had her on the show to talk about her book, The Sixth Extinction. If people want to hear that interview, they can search on her last name, K-O-L-B-E-R-T. So is her new book out already, or did you review it before it was released?
1: I think it's out. I think it's out in the last couple weeks, yeah.
0: Yeah, we got to get her on the show. I know that her uh, brother is a big listener of our show. You write that last year, GDP growth in the United States during the pandemic obviously fell 3.5%. Emissions tumbled, too. The only other time in the last three decades that they have dropped significantly was not coincidentally, also the last time the economy contracted. But it's guided with intent. If it's guided with intent, the cessation of endless growth does not have to mean impoverishment. Doesn't less growth mean less money, less profits, and that means more impoverishment? Can an economy not grow at the same pace and not lead to more uh, poverty?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think, um, you know, the fixation on growth, um, which is, you know, an absolutely religious belief, I think, among, uh, you know, most world leaders and policymakers and and elite circles, um, is quite new. I mean, this goes back to the, uh, you know, late 40s, early 50s. This is a a post-war trend, even in mainstream capitalist economics. Um, the belief that economies must grow. This is this is, you know, um, even in, in classical economics, that didn't have uh, this this insistence on um, on economic growth in the same way uh, that, that neoliberal economics does. Um, and I, you know, I think it's easy to prove wrong uh, by um, recalling that, um, you know. In the U.S., GDP growth um, has been quite steady um, with with a couple of tiny blips um, since the early 1970s. Um, uh, That that curve goes straight up. Um, At the same time, real wages um, have gone straight down um and poverty has gone up um and uh, life expectancy has gone down and uh child mortality has gone up um you know so so as as growth um you know growth does not track uh with every other factor which we associate with with a um you know lives worth living right um we work more for less money um are in in more polluted environments Um, under under more forms of stress, um, even as GDP growth um, has been going up and up and up for decades. Now, of course, um, quality of life has improved drastically for some people. Um, And what we've seen over that period of sustained GDP growth is uh, the increasing concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands. and those those few people um, who have profited enorm- enormously from um, the economic changes of the of the last few decades um, are intent on preserving um, their wealth, uh, even if it means the um, you know the death of billions. At this point, I think that's very clear. Um, and uh, you know, I think one of the a lot of this is is pretty uh depressing we should say but something that actually kind of gave me some some real hope in um working on this piece was coming across uh some numbers which aren't actually you know they're not new to me i just had not quite thought about them in this context um that one figure which i cite in the piece from a recent oxfam um, analysis which found that the richest one percent of the world's population produce 100 times more emissions than the poorest half of the planet's population. Some of your listeners may already um, be aware of that one. Um, Another from uh, the UN Environment Program, not by any means a radical Marxist SEC, from their last Emissions Gap Report, uh, which found that if the richest 1% of the planet's population uh, reduced their current emissions by a factor of 30 The poorest 50% could increase their emissions by a factor of three. Um, You know, and we're talking about the the richest 1%, we're talking about billionaires. And if their consumption goes down by a factor of 30, they're still going to be living a hell of a lot better than almost all of the rest of us are. Um, and, you know, the reason this gave me hope is, is when you start to think in these terms and when you start to think about climate change um, in terms of the existing global inequities, um, then it becomes really clear that, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you take for granted the world that we have and the, and the social and economic relationships that we have in the world, then climate change is impossible. It's an impossible thing to fix right if we have to keep having GDP growth if we have to keep feeding this machine, um, then this re- it does appear like there's nothing we can do. Um, and we're just going to have to gamble on all of these uh, you know absolutely speculative uh, technologies um, and hope that they will will save the day. Um, but if we consider that societies can change and do change, and that mass movements have, over the last two centuries, pushed societies in completely different directions than the ones they were set on, Um, then something else takes shape. Um, And it's the possibility of um, what would have to be really radical social change. Um, But radical social change, that would not only um, reverse the, you know, extraordinary inequities and injustices of the current system but that would take us off of this uh, you know race towards suicide um, that the species is not engaged in but that that one percent of the species is dragging us all along into
0: You also mentioned net zero, and I want to make sure that people understand this. You write a version of the same wager, animates the Biden uh, climate plan, which as Canada, the European Union, the UK and South Korea all have commits to net zero emissions no later than 2050. China plans to reach the same goal by 2060. But you add net zero is a slippery notion. It does not mean zero at all. So what does net zero mean if it doesn't mean zero
1: You know, net zero is, um, I mean, there's nothing that politicians uh, like better than to promise um, that things will reach some amorphous goal um, 30 years from now, right? You know, Joe Biden will be long dead by 2050. Um, You know, most of the people who are currently in Congress will be dead by 2050. Um, So net zero goals are really popular among politicians. They're also popular for among uh you know corporate um, leaders all the all most of the big fossil fuel companies um and and companies engaged in, in fossil fuel intense uh you know airlines uh, shipping companies etc have been releasing their net zero plans um net zero just means that they're going to find a way um, and are finding a way to balance um their emissions um with some kind of offsets um so if you know if carbon emission emissions are in the um the positive column they have to find something else in the negative they, you know maybe they can reduce those emissions somewhat but if they can't reduce them all the way they're going to find something to offset them to put in the negative column um for most corporations um that has meant committing to various kinds of offsets which often means you know we're planting trees we're going to plant lots of trees And those tree plantations are going to allow us to keep, uh, you know, um, spitting out carbon because you can't have a, a, you know, a shipping company that relies on diesel engines or uh, um, an airline that relies on jet fuel um, without spitting out more emissions, right? So we're just going to keep planting trees. Um, And uh, one number that uh, that really struck me was that. Um, ActionAid, an NGO, put out a a study on net zero um, commitments which found that in order to satisfy all of the net zero um, commitments made by companies and governments, we would need another planet to accommodate all of the trees, right? Um, And and trees sound great, and I'm all for reforestation, Um, but a lot of these plans actually just involve tree plantations, right? and what that generally means is ta- would have to mean, um, because we only have so much land mass on the planet, um, would be taking land that is currently being put to other use, because you can't take wild land and plant trees. It already has trees, right? Um, and um, and and planting trees, and that would inevitably mean that that land that is currently being used to produce food for poor people. Um, would be uh, used to create these, these tree plantations. Um, and, tree, and tree plantations, are, you know, this is a, um, not a sustainable, um, this, this doesn't necessarily mean forests, this means uh, monoculture. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think there is a, um, you know uh, a great deal of deceit um, in a lot of those net zero plants. Um, and some of them, you know, the deceit may not be, uh, I, I think there's a, among people who work on this kind of policy, there's a, there's a great belief in this stuff. Um, there's a, the people's faith in technology is, is very, very powerful. Um, so in, in some cases, it's not so much deceit as delusion. Um, but I think when, uh, you know, when we're talking about BP or Shell um, or Mayorsk or, or American Airlines, uh, the deceit is, is, is pretty straightforward.
0: We have been speaking with writer Ben Ehrenreich who wrote the New Republic article We're Hurtling Toward Global Suicide You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Ehrenreich and you can find out more about him at his website BenAaronreich.net. One last question for you Ben and as always our final question is the question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response You write that the white supremacy that threatens to tear the country down while strangling the rest of the globe has proved inseparable from an ecocidal urge to dominate all forms of planetary life. W.E.B. Du Bois saw it clearly 100 years ago saying whiteness is the ownership of the earth forever and ever. It must be confronted head on, you add. So how much is white supremacy an obstacle to fighting climate change? How much is white supremacy a contributor to climate change?
1: Oh, enormously. Um, you know, I, I think um, one book that I, I would uh, uh, recommend, I'm, great, I'm going to blank on the title to it. Um, Amitav Ghosh's book on, on climate change uh, um, is, is, is terrific because one of the things that he does extremely well is um makes the argument that the, the the problem is not simply capitalism um but the colonial relations that were established um, over the last uh few centuries that you know climate change is can never be boiled down to a single country a single place right this is this is the climate belongs to the entire planet um, and what we have seen is um a few countries, mainly the U.S. and the U.K., um, and a few other countries, um, profiting enormously um, off of uh, industrialization, um, while the rest of the planet um, is suffering the uh, impacts of climate change. And those profits weren't—they weren't just innocent profits of, um, you know like the the wonderful fruit of industry. Right. I mean, those profits also depended on a racialized global order in which uh, resources were extracted um, from Africa, um, from Latin America, from um, Asia and the global south um, in order to create riches uh, for a few west rich white Western European countries. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think white supremacy and uh racial injustice are, are absolutely central to how this problem was created. Um, and dealing with them is ab- must be absolutely central to uh dealing with getting us out of this mess.
0: Ben, a pleasure talking to you again. Really great to have you back on the show. What are you working on right now? Are you working on a new book?
1: I'm, I'm working on working on a new book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like most of us, I think the, uh, the, the pandemic is, uh, has thrown me for a few loops, um, but I'm, uh, I'm um, dancing as fast as I can. Vaccinated? Not yet. Um, soon, I hope. Congratulations, you know, by the
0: way. Thank you. Uh, you know, you are a member of the media, so that qualifies in the state of Illinois if you want to come over here for a while.
1: I might have to uh, risk my life and come to
0: Illinois. (laughs) (laughs) Take care, Ben. It's really great to hear from you.
1: Thanks a lot, Chuck. It's
0: always a pleasure. Take care.
1: You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.